In the spring of 2001, the XFL had a football franchise in Las Vegas called the Outlaws. The XFL, unlike the NFL, allowed its players to put whatever name or nickname they wanted to on their jersey. The running back for the Outlaws was a guy named Rod Smart. He was a very talented player from nearby Lakeland, Florida. I loved watching him play because he was so fast. He was really, really talented. He was gifted. What he became famous for, however, was his jersey. It became the number one selling jersey ever for the XFL when it existed because his name on the back said three words, he hate me. Not the best grammar, but it was great hearing, for example, I remember Al Michaels call a game later when he played for the NFL and he'd say, there's the former, he hate me. When he explained the meaning of why he put that on his jersey, he said, well, ever since high school, because I'm so good, because I'm so much better than my opponent and all my opponents, no matter who it is, by the end of the game, he hate me. <laughs> well, let me remind you of who is really good, who is really so much better, that he is truly hated above all because of it. I'm sure you've noticed that Hollywood, academia, they love to take Jesus' name in vain as often and as wickedly as possible. But they never really take Muhammad's name in vain. They never really take Buddha's name in vain. I'm sure you notice that nobody ever really gets offended if there's a statue of Buddha here and there or somewhere, but if there's a simple manger scene, somehow, that needs to be halted and stopped. Why is that? Why is it that he is so hated? Well, it is because, in part, he is so good. He is so much greater. He is so much better. It brings us to verse 14 of our text, where you'll notice a very curious emphasis that is written here to the church at Laodicea. Verse 14 says, And unto the angel, the messenger, really the pastor, of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, I want you to consider carefully, beloved, what Jesus says here about who he is. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and then, of course, the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, note this, when rebuking the lukewarm, powerless, spewed-out church of Laodicea, the remedy for that church, in fact, the truth that it needed to hear concerned the preeminence of Christ. He's the Amen. He's the faithful and true witness. He is the creator of all. Verse 15. I know, this is Jesus speaking, of course. If you have red letter, you'll notice that. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would. I'd rather thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. In other words, when it came down to the true person of Christ, this church at Laodicea had completely lost sight of Jesus' lordship. They were Christian, if by name only. So that there was no conviction, no devotion, no singular commitment to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Jesus was there. He was just a friend, a religious leader to admire, to pray to. The Laodiceans would have loved the mainline denominations 
of our day, for example. They would have loved modern seminaries, the theistic evolution garbage. They would have loved the respectable reverends at the Washington Cathedral. Anything lukewarm, unoffensive, or respectable in society, that is the church at Laodicea. And so what does Jesus say in verse 19? He says, be zealous. The word is fire. Be on fire. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be zealous, not lukewarm. And what do they need to repent of and be zealous, beloved, about? It is this singular thing Jesus tells them, the preeminence of Christ. The fact that Jesus is Lord of all or not Lord at all. And if you're wondering why, that we said that this is a curious emphasis here. It's because of something that Paul wrote in the book of Colossians. I want you to notice on your screen for a moment, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16. And when this epistle is read among you, that is Colossians, cause, make sure that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. Now, wait a minute. Make sure, Paul says, make sure to read the book of Colossians specifically to the church at Laodicea. Now, I ask you a question. What is the book of Colossians all about? What is the theme? One thing. It is the preeminence of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, and I want you to turn there with me and look at it, and we're going to pray. Just a few pages back in Colossians chapter 1, and listen to these or read these words. Paul says, in whom, that is Jesus his dear son, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let me stop there for a moment. It's hard to be lukewarm about Jesus just when you read that verse. In Jesus, we have redemption. He bought us with his blood. Through Jesus, we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. But notice verse 15 who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Remember what he says in Revelation, the amen? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Wait a minute. Make sure Paul says you read this book to the Laodiceans. Well, what this book says is that Jesus is the creator, that he is Lord, that he is the beginning, that he is the head, that he is the firstborn, the amen. How is it possible to ever be lukewarm, therefore, about the Lord Jesus? Well, the Laodiceans found a way, and all over our nation, all over churches in our nation, professing Christians have also found a way. This is why the words of Jesus in Revelation and the Word of God right here, I think, is what all of us need to be reminded of and hear very carefully today. Father, thank you for your Word. And as we look into it again, I ask, God, that through the Holy Spirit we will be convicted, instructed, encouraged, strengthened to know what it really means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. Help us to embrace it with all of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. In AD 62, when the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome for his allegiance to Christ over Caesar, note that he's imprisoned in Rome because of total allegiance to the Lord Jesus over Caesar. 
Paul had gotten word that one of the churches that he himself had started, the one in a city called Colossae, had been infected with a very strange heresy. And this heresy tried to equate the glory of angels with that of Jesus Christ. In other words, somebody was teaching that that there were spiritual beings in existence that were on a par with the Lord Jesus himself. And of course, when Paul heard about this, he immediately set out to write this epistle to set things straight, and that's when the Holy Spirit wrote him, uh, inspired him to write every single word that we have. In addition to that, the Holy Spirit instructed Paul to add, at the end of the epistle, a unique mention of another church, one that especially needed these admonitions. The same church at Laodicea that our Lord would also write a letter to some years later. Now, folks, the fact that God wanted the Christians at Colossae and he wanted the Christians in the church at Laodicea to hear these specific truths is a reminder that the reason that this epistle is preserved in his word is that you and I must and need to hear them as well. In Colossians chapter 1, in three marvelous verses, I want you to notice that God exalts three truths, three facts about the Son of God, our Lord, that every believer must remember, and especially, I must say, especially in these times. Now, obviously, this is not all of the truth that there is about Christ. It's not even a drop in the proverbial bucket. What it is, however, is an accounting of three specific things and absolute truths that illustrate what is so great, what is so glorious about the Lord Jesus Christ and why, therefore, why there can be no middle ground. Why there is zero room. Jesus said, I'll speak to you. I wish you were one other. There is no room for lukewarm, lukewarm devotion. The first one you'll notice is that, number one, Jesus created all things. Look at verse 16. For by him were all things created. By Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Cause that these be read also among the Laodiceans. Here's what Jesus said to Laodicea. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, folks, please don't miss this. You and I are living in a day in which science, so-called, has become a religion. It's an idol. In fact, the only tool I can see that Satan has used more than religion to deceive people is the religion of science. Not true science. I'm talking about the religion some call science. Science is intended, has always been intended to be objective. It's observation, experimentation in order to gain knowledge, and many, many scientists are objective, that's for sure. There are a lot of brilliant scientists, in fact, who believe in God. There are a lot of brilliant scientists who believe that God is the creator. However, you do realize that they never came to that conclusion just through science, in part because science knows nothing about the afterlife, nothing about the spiritual life, nor truly about origins. Scientists, however, can know about the origins of everything in the universe if they will believe the living Word of God. Copernicus, for example, a more brilliant mind you could never find, was on his deathbed. 
And on his deathbed, one of his family members brought his greatest work, the revolution of heavenly bodies, to hold in his hands as he died, but he dismissed it. He directed instead that his tombstone have these following words. O Lord, the faith thou didst give to Paul I cannot ask. The mercy thou didst show to Peter I dare not ask. But Lord, the grace thou didst show to the dying thief, that Lord, please show to me. It's not science, that's a scientist with a measure of faith. I was reading this week a medical journal. And I was reading about medical science and all the, you know, the government, the official government arm of, the, of medical science is the FDA. Well, I've got to tell you, that's science. But in my brief experience on earth, I've been told that I should never, ever eat MSG, drink caffeine, drink whole milk. We had a food pyramid when I, that I had to draw in the third grade. Now it's upside down. Literally, all the good things are bad and the bad things are good. I mean, good tasting. Amen. But it's always amazed me how many, how many changes, how many certainties they have that are no longer certain. It's very dubious, changing, replaceable, just like the FDA itself. But you know, beloved, I hold in my hand the Word of God. And as we noted recently, the Word of the living God does not have a seven-year half-life. It doesn't even have a 700-year half-life. It is eternal it is immutable, it is the source of all truth, and this word of the living God came from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, it is the only book, the only source that tells the truth about origins. And listen to me, the reason why this book reveals the truth and knows the truth about origins is that Jesus Christ was there. Not only was he there, he did it. All things, we just read it, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If you read yesterday's news, you may have noticed the most recent discovery by the James Webb Space Telescope. Here's what the heading of the, of the article said. Something on a nearby exoplanet, this was a new discovery, and, and they're all abuzz about it. You know, I mean, all the nerds in the space world. I'm sort of one of them. <laughs> Something on a nearby exoplanet could reshape our entire understanding of planetary evolution. Again? It's a new telescope. I'm going to read you just a paragraph from what it said. This is yesterday's article in Discovery. The fact that we see these sand clouds high up in the atmosphere must mean that the sand rain droplets evaporate in deeper, very hot layers, and the resulting silicate vapor is efficiently moved back up where they recondense to form silicate clouds once more. Notice the word rain and clouds. Explained lead author Dr. Michael Min. This is very similar to the water vapor and cloud cycle on our own Earth, but with droplets made of sand. It's not similar. Sand is not water, but I get their point. It looks like clouds. It's exciting. The name of this exoplanet is called WASP-107b. WASP-107b, with all its fluffiness, points to astronomers to a whole new host of possible planetary incarnations that have yet to be discovered. While this exoplanet is undoubtedly inhospitable to life, at least as we know it, it allows for us to imagine strange new worlds that do not fit the mold of planetary 
evolution. Now, I'll be honest with you, I read it's long. I don't know about all that. What I do know is this. The more they look, and the more they theorize and study and observe and imagine, as the word is used here, the more they realize they really know nothing about the origins of the universe. Everything has to be reshaped, reimagined. We have to rethink this and rethink that. I'll say it again. There are some humble men in physics, cosmology, natural history. Isaac Newton understood his mortality. But when you listen to some people today who are TV celebrities, especially in the progressive world like Neil Tyson, you realize right away it's not knowledge that offends them. It's not knowledge that violates them. It's not facts at all, but it is the truth. And most especially, it is the truth that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Have you noticed that nothing in the world is more attacked, more assaulted, more rejected than the biblical account of creation? It is absolutely necessary in the secular world that from K3 or K2 until postgraduate school, with every resource available, Satan barrages the mind of people with a theory that was invented by a bitter man with a theology degree in the 19th century. It wasn't, he, Darwin wasn't bitter at creation, obviously, but he was bitter at the creator for, quote, allowing his son to die. Darwin began his quest because he was angry and he wanted to find a replacement for the creator God. And in the 19th century of progressives, he found a ready and willing audience. None of it existed before him. None of it. Ask yourself, beloved, why is the Lord Jesus, why is Jesus the Christ so hated, so despised by the world? And why is it that those who don't want to be hated by the world feel like we must be lukewarm? We have to be tepid about this Jesus so let's do this. Let's have theistic evolution. Let's say that there's a God and there's a Jesus, but, you know, we also embrace that which contradicts his words. The Bible says, number one, it's because he created all things. The second thing you'll notice is it leads to this, because if the Lord Jesus created all things, that means that he claims all things. All things. Colossians 1, look at verse 16 again, the last line. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, all things, Jesus, he might have the preeminence. You know, folks, I don't know individually why you came today. What I mean by that is I don't know individually, each of you, your, your reason for coming to church. Maybe you came because you hoped and thought that God would bless your business, put a stamp of approval on you. Maybe you came with the hope that it would fix your marriage that's in trouble or, or, or your children, your kids. Maybe it's the turkey over here that's going to have in a couple hours. That's why I came. That's all I'm going to say. But you know what? The real reason why most of us are here today, because I know most of you, the real reason why most of us are here today is very simple. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of this church and he's Lord of this heart. 
And Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. And Jesus in his word says, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together. Because he is Lord, his word is true. So you know the correct response to the truth that he created all things and claims all things. The only rational and spiritual response is to say with the songwriter, King of my life, I crown thee now. There's no lukewarmness. King of my life, I crown thee now. Then in all things, Jesus has the preeminence in my life. In Revelation chapter 4, God's people are shown up in heaven as casting their crowns. This is what you're going to do in heaven if you're saved. They take the crowns off of their head and there are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. And whatever ones have these crowns, they place them at Jesus' feet and they say those three words, thou art worthy. In eternity, thou art worthy. And the reason why they cry, thou art worthy, O Lord, in that very verse it says, because thou hast created us. Because thou hast created us. Psalm 24, 1. You wonder why the secular world, and especially progressives in our country right now, cannot abide this book, the Bible? Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. All of it. He created all things. He claims all things. In the 1970s, I was a student at Martin County High School in Stewart, and I took a course called Business Law. It was an elective. I thought it would be fun, interesting. Maybe I could use it in the ministry one day, and I remember it being the most boring class in the history of hum humankind. Dragged myself to that class. Except I remember one section that dealt with copyright law. I loved it. I learned that copyrights are owned by the people who create works of expression. I didn't know that. They literally own it. The exception, of course, is if a worker's created it in the course of his or her employment. And so Mr. Petrie would get up there and he would explain to us what it means to have intellectual property where the owner has exclusive rights to any creative work. An original expression of an idea in a creative work. They owned it. And the key words in the world of jurisprudence I learned in that class are the words creation and ownership. And I have to tell you, as I sat there for those days, I got to thinking about that. And it became the theme of my thesis that I wrote for the class. Because I was humbled by the thought that creation denotes ownership. And way back then in high school, I thought, no wonder the flesh rejects creation account. Because if there is a creator and he is God, then his creation is accountable. As the last line of verse 16 denotes, if all things were made by him, then all things are for him. That includes the earth and the sky and the sea and the creatures. And yes, Mr. President, little children. When President Biden said last spring that there's no such thing as someone else's child, that our nation's children are all our children, he got an applause, but not from me, because that's wrong. They belong to God, and God has given the parents of those children full responsibility for them. Some in this world truly believe that the government owns all your children. Most people in government right now believe it. 
It takes a village, you know. Unfortunately, everyone can see, especially in our big cities, what a good job secularism does with children. They would literally rather have cross-dressers exploit your eight-year-old girl with pervy paragraphs than for the parent of that girl to read the Word of God to her. It is why, again, the Lord Jesus, who created all things and who claims all things, is so despised by our secular world. There is always, as we stated many, many times on Wednesday night, a spiritual reason behind every world conflict and an illogical act. Pastor, why does the UN hate Israel? You should know why. Jesus created all things. Jesus claims all things. It leads us to the third thing in the text I want you to notice. The Lord Jesus controls all things. Look at verse 17 first. It says, and he, Jesus, is before all things. And by him, by Jesus, all things consist. You know, for most part, I love to watch Nova on PBS. Now, don't misunderstand. It can be extremely, extremely frustrating. So I'm not recommending it necessarily. But science really is amazing. It's fun. And, and Nova, as I saw a while back, sometimes highlights actual truth. In one of my favorite episodes on matter, I noticed how every one of the phys- physicists there that were interviewed all over the world, basically, said that the greatest mystery of all about matter and really about our universe is what holds it together. We can understand this, we observe this, and we can do this. Admittedly, they don't understand the force. They can't see it. They don't understand the power that keeps the powerful elements together. Now, they know how to split it and to create a huge explosion and blow up cities. But what holds it together? The last line of verse 17, the last word is consist. By Jesus, all things consist. Look at that Greek word sometime when, you're, when you have free time. Look at how it's translated elsewhere in the Bible. It literally is by Jesus, all things are held together. You know, the Apostle Peter was not a scientist. He was a fisherman. He was a preacher. But you know what God told Peter about the universe, about the elements? Not a scientist. You'll notice in your screen, 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, let me stop there, what word? The word that created them. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And God said, let there be light. And God said, that's the word in the verses before that created all things, all matter. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word that created them, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Go down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements, look up that Greek word. The very basic, basic parts of matter. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Notice this. Understand, beloved, that the Lord Jesus controls 
His creation. What holds it together? His word holds it together. What's going to make it split apart and completely, completely uh, disintegrate? His word will do that. He controls all things, and that includes, follow this, that includes the lives of his new creation. All of you in this room who are born again, Jesus is in complete control of your life. And the reason today why that truth is such a blessing to any child of God here is that unlike the government or academia or media or billionaires in tech, after all, they want to control my life. They really do. They want to control everybody's lives in the world. But unlike all of those, the Lord Jesus is truth. And the truth, he said, makes you free. It's an amazing thing to contemplate and remember and to embrace and understand that our God cannot lie. I would hate to think that the New York Times or CNN controls all things. When I was almost 15 years of age, I remember traveling on a church-sponsored trip to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. I went there to see the school because my pastor wanted me to attend there, and I was praying about whether or not that was my, my destiny. And so I went, and I loved it. But the one thing that I remember most about the entire trip was pulling up in our bus and seeing this big, large, marble-engraved sign at the entrance of the school. I still have in my office now a picture that I took of that same sign. The sign is engraved with the words of Titus 1-2, which says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Before the world began? Oh, yeah. Before Abraham was, I am. The beginning of the creation of God. I cannot tell you, beloved, what an impression that little text had on my heart as a teenager. At that time, our family was moving from there to Indiantown, Florida, Federal, North Carolina. Changes were going on. I was losing my youth group in my church. The Watergate hearings were in full force that summer, and all you saw or heard on TV was one witness after another standing before a Senate committee, raising the right hand and swearing to do something they probably weren't going to do, namely tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I remember thinking that with man, you have to do something that is akin to an oath, a swearing in, under threat of perjury and penalty in order to maybe get some kind of assurance that their testimony is true. Why? Because man's essentially a liar, untrustworthy. But with God, you'll notice that text in Titus does not say that he won't lie. It says our God cannot lie. I can't be lukewarm about a God like this. There's a very sweet young lady I've spoken to many, many times at a coffee shop where I go to study. She's a Muslim. She wears a head covering, and we've talked. She's seen me many times with my Bible out and while I'm studying. And some time ago, she commented on her religion using the Quran and what I thought. She asked me what the biggest difference was, and I said this. I said, well, the biggest difference, first of all, is that Jesus is God, and Muhammad was a man. That wasn't very pleasant to her, obviously. So I tried to move along, and I said, there are a thousand other differences 
between the two as well, but let me start with one. Go back and notice how Muhammad treated women and notice how Jesus treated women. And that planted a seed in her that resonated, still does to this day. And I remember thinking, you know, this lady is so unashamed. She's so unashamed of a 6th century Bedouin cult leader. She shows it in even how she dresses. But beloved, Jesus is the truth. He is the creator. He is the Lord of all. There is no reason. There is no cause. There is no excuse for any believer to be lukewarm about his faith in him. See, Pastor, I came this morning hoping I would get a Thanksgiving service and a Thanksgiving sermon. Okay, I got you covered. Look at verse 10 and we'll close. He says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Let me just stop here. You're not working wor- walking worthy of Jesus if you're lukewarm about him if you're ducking and hiding. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to the glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Here it is. Here's your thanksgiving. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. There's your thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me. Look, folks, if you're a child of the living God today, if Jesus is your Savior, then he's also your Lord. King of kings, Lord of lords. Cause that this be read to the church at Laodicea because there's something going on there. Jesus put his finger on it when he wrote his letter to them. They were lukewarm about who Jesus is. My prayer for us here today, if you're saved today, if you're a child of the living God, he, he claims all things, He controls all things, He created all things. My prayer is that when we walk out those doors and we go into this world, we are unashamed. Not just of Jesus, but like Paul said, I am not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, the whole message, the whole true Jesus, the Jesus of this book. And being thankful for that. If you're here today and you're not saved or you don't know that you're saved, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, then I want to encourage you today. Today is the day of salvation. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the only Savior. He is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by Him. That's the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said... Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed. Just as I said earlier that I don't know why you came to church today, I do know that it doesn't matter at this point why, except that I know God would speak to your heart through the Holy Spirit. Whoever you are and whatever you are, I'm glad you're here. Pastor Blalock, I'm here today, and I'm a Christian. By the grace and mercy of God, I'm saved, but I needed this message. As a believer, the last thing I want to do is to become lukewarm about following Jesus the Lord. There's something that was said in the text, either in Revelation or Colossians, 
that the Holy Spirit has brought to my attention. And I'm saved, but I needed this message today. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building and amen, and I lift mine. Praise the Lord. Look, it's a little teeny tiny sliver of time we have on this earth. It is a vapor, the Bible says. It's a tiny sliver. Might as well go ahead and live it with zeal. Be on fire for God. Be unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Pastor Blalock, I'm here today and I don't know I'm saved. I'm not sure my name is written in heaven. But I want to be. I mean, folks, you heard the text, what Paul said, that we were delivered, that thanks be to God who made us partakers, that this inheritance with Jesus himself, that's you. You can be a child of the living God if you accept God's Son, Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. Pastor, that's me today. I needed the message. I'm, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I'd like to know that I'm saved. Would you pray for me? Someone like that? Raise your hand really high. We just want to pray, all right? And amen. Yes, ma'am, I see your hand. Hold it up there high enough where I can see it, yes. At home, where you are, I literally would encourage you to fall on your knees right where you are, living room, bedroom. Fall on your knees and ask Christ to be your Savior. Confess your sins. Turn to Him for salvation. Father, bless the invitation. I pray, Lord, you'll speak to every heart that's open to you now, and I pray that all of us in this room will recognize what a blessing and a glory and a privilege and an honor it is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. If Paul's willing to suffer in jail because he would not give allegiance to Caesar over Jesus, surely in this country of freedom, we will give Christ all full allegiance over any Caesar. For these who have asked for prayer, draw them to you, Lord, please, for those who are not saved as well. We'll give you the praise for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.